Well, if you would open your Bible to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 7, if you're following along, if you happen to bring a Bible this morning, there are Bibles in front of you, the blue books, you can find the passage we'll be looking at uh, on page number 402, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8, continuing our study through this book of the Bible. We've been in this book for a few weeks. I chose to preach through Nehemiah at the beginning of the summer because I, I discerned the leading of the Spirit to direct us to this book at this time in our church's life. Nehemiah is a book about building and rebuilding, about being God's people, about following God's leadership. Now, more foundationally, I chose to preach Nehemiah because it's in the Bible. And no matter what book I decided on, we know God has something for us there. This morning, I was regretting choosing Nehemiah to preach through. As I went back through my prepared notes, the entire thing just seemed to be crumbling in my hands. I was not convinced that those words were what God wanted me to say to you. Some of them remain. Some have been replaced. Sometimes a preacher can be convinced that they know what's needed to get people back to God. Sometimes, like me, they can be convinced that they have no idea what to say to get people back to God. Sometimes people can be convinced that they know what's needed to get people back to God. And this is why politics has been a shiny object of distraction for the American church. I wonder if my unease with my sermon this morning was because originally I had managed to draft a sermon that completely sidestepped the circumstances of this week. Even I, who, if you know me well, generally lives under a rock when it comes to current events, could not remain in the dark about the Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Wade, handing the question of the legality of abortion in our country back to the state legislatures. Ever since that decision, I've been agitated and uneasy. Perhaps because I was aware this moment would come right now where I would come to you needing to preach God's word to God's people, and maybe I was feeling like Jonah, wanting to run the other way. We believe as a church that scripture was given at a certain point in history, throughout history, progressively, but its application remains very relevant at any point in history, even now. The Bible speaks to us today and to the circumstances of our lives. This I am confident of and we are confident of as a church. But whether or not we've understood the Bible rightly, maybe that's where my unease came from. Was it God's word I had heard and was prepared to speak or was it my best attempt at my understanding of his word, maybe a mixture On top of that, my unease since the Dodds decision, putting my cards on the table, I am in full favor of laws that end the practice of abortion. I think this accords with God's value of life. But I have lived and I have worked in the heart of American politics and have witnessed many, many people, including myself at one point, put our trust in human laws to bring us back to where we need to be. You may be here, a person who believes in God. You may be here thinking good laws like these will be the thing that gets us back to God. If you don't believe in God, you may be here and you may just think a certain type of laws help us become the best version of ourselves. Now, depending on which side of the issue you walked in on, and I don't presume to think everyone is happy this morning about what happened. You are probably either, you may be either riding high because of the law, riding low this morning because of the law that was overturned. 
And all this makes me uneasy as we come to our passage this morning. Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8. In Nehemiah chapter 8, Israel assembles, God's word is read, and the people realize that for generations they've been ignoring God's way of life. They had all the best laws, but having the laws did not bring them back to God. Friends, I want to praise God, as Jeff did already, for rescued lives that come as a result of the Supreme Court decision this week. I just also want to make sure that I and you are not trusting in these new laws to bring us back to God. I wonder if God had me revisit my sermon this morning in order to make sure that I wasn't trusting in my words to bring you all to him. I pray that in the basic observations we now make from this passage, God will show us, some of us maybe for the first time, maybe for others of us, remind us again of the things we need, the basic things we need in order to come back to life with God. This is the context we're stepping into as we open Nehemiah chapter 7, if you've been following along. Israel has been far away from God. That led to their exile from the land that God had given them and promised them because of their sin against God. And in uh, in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, we are watching how God is in the process of bringing them back. And we've been seeing how, how the place was being prepared. The wall was being built. From Nehemiah chapter 7a, as we investigate Israel's life and its relevance and teaching for us, we're going to see three basic truths. Three basic truths. God has a place for us. God's grace gathers us. And it is God's word that brings us back to God. God has a place for us. God's grace gathers us. And God's word brings us back to God. So let's begin with that first basic truth. God has a place for us. Let's read. Follow along with me as I start in chapter 7. I'm going to read the first uh, four verses there. Now when the wall had been built, that is around the city of Jerusalem, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So this is it. This is what all chapters 1 through 6 have been leading up to. This is why Nehemiah left the court of the king of Persia. This is why he endured ridicule and opposition. This is why the people stood guard night after night, protecting against enemy attack. In less than two months, finally the rubble heap that was Jerusalem's walls has now been transformed into city walls. And Nehemiah demonstrates wise leadership, Delegating authority to Hananiah, who his character and integrity were suited for the task of keeping watch over this city. Think here, just another precursor to how God has his church recognize someone's suitability to serve as an elder or deacon in the church based on their character qualifications. And while no one would argue that Nehemiah's leadership got Israel to this place, Nehemiah will be regularly asserting that God is responsible for this achievement. So back in chapter 6, verse 16, he says the wall was built with the help of our God. In chapter 4, verse 19, the enemies were held off because God fought for them. In chapter 2, verse 29, the encouragement Nehemiah gave to the people in the first place to pursue this work was, the God of heaven will make us prosper. If there was anyone to credit for the completion of this wall, Nehemiah knew that the strength came from God's hand. And this was nothing new in the way that God operated with his people. In the beginning, God provided earth, this planet, 
and on it a garden called Eden as a place where the first man and woman would live. When God called Abraham to be the father of his people, he promised to give them a land. God led Israel out of Egypt and took them to the promised land that he had chosen for them. When it's time to live with God, he takes care of the living arrangements. He prepares the place. And now Israel is is on the verge of an invitation to come back into life with God. Striking that the one thing you and I feel that we must sort out before we go anywhere is housing, right? You look at Zillow, you're about to make a move. You got to make sure that apartment is there for you, a house is there for you. That's got to be sorted, But that's the one thing that people do not have as they make this transition. Look at that in verse 4. Great wall, but no houses for people to live in. And yet in chapter 8, as we get there in just a few minutes, we will find the people living temporarily inside the walls under booths made of palm fronds and joyfully. Apparently, when God prepares a place... He provides what he knows we need for life, not what we think we need. If you're a student of history or of medieval history, you'll know that in that day and age, massive quantities of wealth and man hours went into the construction of cathedrals that remain even to this day. The architectural goal behind those buildings was to design a place that offered a transcendent experience where the sounds and the sights and the smells would transport a worshiper from the earthly into the heavenly. Now, although the average person could not themselves interact with the reading of God's word in Latin, which most people didn't speak, And weren't encouraged to approach God directly about their sin, which a priest mediated. Still, the cathedral, with its ritual, held out promise that inside the doors, you could interact with God. Not too unlike Israel's worship, actually. At the time of the walls being finished, if you read through the book of Ezra just before this, he had led the people to complete a rebuild of the temple. The temple was where the consecrated priests would make sacrifices on behalf of the people, mediating and interceding for them. Inside the temple, God had at times brought his presence. But by Nehemiah's time, God had long departed. And Jerusalem, temple and walls, had been overrun. The experience of Israel and the temple cast a question over the cathedral efforts of the Middle Ages Or any man-made attempt to bring God's presence arbitrarily to a place. Is life with God found inside a building? What if God chooses not to be there? And that question gets clearly answered later in the Bible. When God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be born as a baby... Angels announce that with his birth, God has come to live with his people, to dwell with them. Jesus came and taught people to stop thinking of the physical temple as God's dwelling place because he had come to stand in and replace all of that with himself. You can read about that in John chapter 2. And because of what Jesus would do and how he would uphold God's laws and live righteously and teach people the way to God, he would go to death for sinners. And through that death and resurrection into life, those who were in Jesus could now dwell with God. Not needing any intermediary, but Jesus not needing any special place. The place was found and fulfilled in Christ. So where is God's place for us? Do we need this to live with God? 
Do we need our budget? Do we need our missions activities? Do we need our reputation in the community? Do we need our church traditions? When God decided in grace and mercy to make a place for us to have life with him, he didn't build a red brick edifice with a steeple. He sent his son. So we're getting back to the basics in Nehemiah 7 and 8. Church, Jesus is where we live. We abide in him as he calls us to. He is where our life is. The place to enjoy life in God is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And with the walls built in Nehemiah 7, Jerusalem is prepared but uninhabited. Who will live here? And where will the people come from? Well, let's keep going through and find our second basic truth. God's grace gathers us. God's grace gathers his people. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baana. And the rest of the chapter will then go through at length the list of people who Ezra also records in chapter 2 of all the people who came out of exile to come help restore and rebuild the city. I will not read all those names now. I think verse 5 is a marker that a new part of the book has begun. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, Nehemiah sets out on the wall project because God had put it into his heart. And now he embarks on assembling God's people to come live inside the walls for the same reason. So the rest of the book will pivot to focus on Israel's life with God inside the walls. When God offers life in his kingdom through his son Jesus, there is some major assembly required on God's part. Before people are ready to live in his kingdom, there are some things he needs to do. We see that illustrated here with Israel. Someone had to gather them. Someone had to have named them as people, reinstate them in their roles as priests, verse 39. Levites, verse 43. Servants, verse 46. And it is Nehemiah, God's appointed leader, who gathers God's people. And what process does Nehemiah use to assemble these people? Well, he goes back to the record. He goes back to the record. As I said in chapter 2 in Ezra and here in chapter 7, the record of people who return from captivity. Nehemiah is not just looking for warm bodies to fill the city. He's seeking for God's chosen people to inhabit God's prepared place. We know that he does this and he's careful about this because in verse 64, he doesn't just let anybody who claims to be in the priest class serve at priest, as priest without their priest credentials. He prohibits it, exercising great care over how the worship of God is to be done. And this group listed in Nehemiah 7 doesn't represent the entirety of Jewish people alive at the time. Many people had chosen not to return. Choosing their new lives in exile over the sacrifice required to come start over in Jerusalem. As an example, at one point we're told in scripture that the number of fighting men in Israel alone numbered in the hundreds of thousands. And now the whole remnant returning isn't even 50,000 people. But by the time this group is assembled, everything is here for re-engaging the worship-oriented life God commanded. There were people to lead. There were people to help. There were people to give. And all the supplies came in through God's 
prompting of the people to be generous. It is God in his grace that brings people to live with him. God chooses. These people are named before they are enrolled. And they are enrolled before they assemble. And the assembly that gathers in chapter 8 verse 1 is a known and determined set of people who are there because God providentially ordered their lives to be there. God chooses. God gathers us through Jesus. He calls us to come. Jesus is the door God has given to be the way by which we find a place in his kingdom. He is the gathering point for sinners to come in and be cleansed from our sin and enter into life with God through Christ and Christ alone. And those who are chosen and those who are called are the ones who respond and are changed. We see that here. These people who have been named and enlisted and brought and gathered. What is it they do? As a response, they give of their livelihood. They come and join the assembly there in Jerusalem. And they come expectantly to be the people of God and listen to God's word for them. How could that have all happened? Was it because they initiated this of their own? Is it because they sent out a referendum? We should rebuild God's walls in a city. We should enjoin each other to come and worship God as he originally called us to do. No, God was initiating that, going before it all and bringing people in as he has done with us, church. As he has gathered us through Jesus by his grace. And, and we know, if you read Israel's history, this is precisely the time when we expect them to start complaining about something. <laughs> when, they, when it's all laid out, when the, when the table is prepared, when they got everything they need, this is exactly when they, were, they acted like us. And they bicker, or they fight, or they just decide God's word isn't what they want. So we know there's reasons in the human heart. At this point in their history, they could have complained. They could have held off on committing, just like so many have done before them. But they didn't. And I think the distinction is because God was the one drawing them in his grace. So when we gather as a church here, we gather together throughout our weeks, when we gather for our members meeting tonight, there are lots of things that we can look to and see that cause us to doubt or be discouraged. There are a lot of things that can potentially get between us. But there is so much more for us to wonder and rejoice at. Namely, the gracious choice of God to let us come in through Jesus. We are assembled here. We are called a church because God went and found us. Only his grace gets the credit for changing us from wanderers into worshipers. So as we look this week at the laws that govern our country, remember Without God's grace, God's laws show us how far away we are from God. It is Jesus' grace that gathers us, and not because we're right. Not because we have the right laws, not because we've established the best form of human government, but because Jesus has shown us grace by giving his life To be the ransom, the payment, the shed blood offered from himself to cleanse us and make us God's people. And I think God's grace also motivates us to see others gathered with us who may not see laws, human laws, the same as us. It motivates us to love each other. We might not share our politics or our preferences. But God has made a gracious choice to bring us together as one in Christ. 
When we prize his grace, we prefer each other. So our worship, as we're seeing in Nehemiah, it is all a response of his, to his grace. Our work throughout this week, it's an opportunity to respond to his grace. Our giving to one another and to this church and our lives to serve other people, that is a response to his grace. Our sacrifice, whatever it might be that we're called to, a response to his grace. Our whole lives, a response to grace. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. And if his grace gathers us, church, then among these gathered is where he wants us to live out our lives. This is setting for us the priority of being meaningfully committed to God's people wherever you are at any stage of your life. If you've not found a church home, we offer ourselves to you. Assemble and gather in the grace of Of Jesus with us and live out the life that Jesus has provided us. We would love to help you understand how you could do that or to help you find a church where you could do that. This is where God's people need to be among the people he's gathered. The last truth for us, third basic truth Nehemiah 7 and 8 has for us is this. God's word brings us back to God. God's word brings us back to God. I'm going to read all of chapter 8. Here we go. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattatiah, Shammah, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseiah on his right hand. And Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshalom on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Pause. If you've been wondering if you could actually say out loud some sort of verbal response to God's word during these services, here is your biblical justification. And if you've been feeling uncomfortable because you want to praise the Lord with your hands lifted up and other people around you, like me, for some reason don't do that, here is your biblical justification to lift your hands in worship. There we go. Right here in God's word. There we go. All right. Let's keep going. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out 
and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, that's Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Okay, so a little background info here uh, that I'll give in just a second. But, but this, under this point, God's, God's word brings us back to God. I'm, I'm going to highlight four, four things, four features of how God's word brings us back to, back to God. And the first one is this. God's word shows us his way for us. God's word shows us his way for us. That's how God's word in one way brings us back to God. Now, this assembly in, in chapter 8 is, I think, one of the highest points in Israel's history with God. Which, which I had not really seen until I was studying it this week. It's a bizarre place to have a high point because less people, no houses, right? You're not thinking this is like in the list of highlights of Israel, but it is. Because if you think about Israel's history... We can stack up some assemblies that they had that were, that were far from this, that were low points by comparison. So let, let me give you a few. Remember the golden calf? Where they couldn't wait for God's way of worship in the Ten Commandments and they built a false god and worshipped it? That was an assembly of Israel. Remember Korah's rebellion? Where several hundred people told Moses and Aaron that they didn't want to be led by God's chosen leader anymore? Remember 1 Samuel that Jeff preached from a few weeks ago when the people demanded in an assembly that Samuel, God's chosen judge and prophet, give them a king like the nations instead of God being their king. (laughs) Striking how often getting together for Israel became an occasion for people telling God what they wanted instead of listening to God for what he wanted for them. And this is sadly what happens when God's book is closed among God's people. When God's voice goes silent, we wander from God. So this, Nehemiah 8, is a high point because finally the people are initiating the public reading of Scripture. They seem to request it. It comes at their uh, ask. And they stand there for the better part of six, six hours standing. They stand there listening attentively as one man reads the law of God. Huge high point. It stands out to us because it is so unlike their history. And yet this was supposed to be how they lived. Affirming and agreeing audibly saying it's true. Amen to the preacher. And then sitting, listening to others come and explain it more to them. This is what makes the people finally distinct. It's not their power. It's not their armies. It's not their walls. It's not the size of their city. It is now finally that they are distinct in the world. They desire to hear God's word tell them how they were to live. Friends, you don't need to hear my opinion. (laughs) You don't need to hear Jeff's opinion. You don't need to hear Mark's opinion. You don't need to hear anybody's opinion who regularly stands in this pulpit. You can get man's opinion plenty of places in this world. When we gather as God's people, we need to hear the laws that are given to us by our king. We need to hear how he has a way of living that is truly living. The one we don't know unless he shows it to us. We need to come around his word unified in our conviction and expectation that it is the word of God that is life to us. I've gotten this summer to get together with several guys in this church on Monday afternoons. We've been getting together a group together to do various things. One of the things we do you might be interested to know about is a time called service review. 
where we actually go back through the music we sang and the leading of the service and the prayers and the sermon. And whoever uh, preached gets to sit and, and receive godly encouragement and godly constructive criticism from other people, uh, which I find to be really valuable. It helps me grow as a preacher. I know that. It helps me see ways that I could get better and be more helpful to you and understand God's word in a more faithful way. So I really value that time. And one thing I've noticed and been, been encouraged by that time is that I find that people in our church desire to see clearly that the sermons preached here come from God's word. I'm really encouraged by that. So if I spent more time one particular week talking about, if I, if I spent more time than I should talking without showing how it came from the word, I will hear about it on Monday. And I'm glad for that. And I get that because when, when I am in, in the seat and I am listening, that's what the spirit in me wants to uphold and affirm that I hear what's being said and I can see and know and say, this is God speaking to us. And so this is why we pray every other Wednesday and during our weeks. This is why we encourage each other to pray that God would give us faithful preaching of his word. Because if we lose that, we will eventually lose our way. And this is why we endeavor to walk through books of the Bible when we preach, as we are this morning, so that we'll hear all of God's word, not just our favorite parts. And I love the picture of the groups of people. Do you see them in verse 7 and 8? Somebody joked this week that this is a justification for small group ministry in the church. Um, people being helped by some to better hear and understand. See, when the, peop when, the, when the people gather, the word is scattered among them. So that when the people are scattered, the word can still grow in them. This is part of what I want, understand you want me to doing, be doing as one of the pastors of this church. Giving time to train people in God's word so that they can go and teach others too. I trust God's even using the preaching of his word this morning to do that. There's so much here in chapter 8 to guide our life with God around his word. Maybe you'd like to keep studying God's word on your own today. See how God's people can live under God's word. But I'm going to move on. Second feature of how God's word directs our life. God's word directs us to mourn our sin. God's word directs us to mourn our sin. You see that especially uh, there. As we transitioned uh, in that middle section of, of chapter 8 verses 9 through 12. As the people initially hear God's word and grieve. See, this, this day that they were observing, the feast day and the assemblies, were kind of like red lights that God had put in the daily routine of the nation. It was a time to stop work, set aside a day or a week, as a rem and to remember. Remember that Israel was a people bought by God, that they were his, that he purposed to make them more like himself. And how would God do that? Well, he would give his word, and the people would obey his word. And now... As God's word is read on that day, the people realize that they have really messed this whole thing up. I think they are mourning and weeping because they are hearing how the whole tragedy of the rise and the fall and the exile of Israel could have all been avoided if they had just listened to God. They are realizing that they have no one to blame for the wreckage and ruin of the nation but themselves and their hard-hearted stubbornness. You know, I find in my life, I wonder if you find this too, that oftentimes in making us more like himself, God will impress on us just how much unlike him we still are. In order to get us and draw us nearer to his voice, God will call our attention to the areas that we are choosing to wander from him. And if we don't, at some point, or maybe at regular points, despair over our sin, why would we ever depend on God to make us different? God directs Israel to observe this holy day, but their sin stood in the way. And so it is with us, and so it is the reason for which Christ died for us. To take our sin between us and God out of the way. 
to take God's wrath that we deserved on himself. To remove our sins as far as the east is from the west from God. To be forgiven and forgotten. This is what Christ has done. To take care of our sin that leads us to mourn and grieve when we see it. And we're hopeful that we will as a church become more like God. Because Christ has lived a holy life and died to make us holy too. If our faithfulness to God was the key to our holiness. We could only weep. But it's God's faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness that we've already celebrated in our singing this morning. It's God's faithfulness that brought Israel back. It's God's faithfulness that provides us the way to true and lasting change through his spirit. And this is why we can live with joy. Which leads me to the third part of how God's word directs us to life. With back to him. The third part is this. God's word directs us to find joy in Jesus. To find joy in Jesus. It is no wonder why Israel was so grieved. They were face to face with the fact that all that happened to them as captives was because they had not listened to God for generations. And yet God in his providence did not bring this to their attention on day 10 of the seventh month that they're in. Do anybody know what day was day 10 of the seventh month of Israel's calendar? The day of atonement. The day of atonement. But God in his province didn't bring that to their attention. He didn't bring them to assemble. And it just so happened to be as they read the law that, oh, we're on day 10. And we're supposed to be burning a sacrifice to remind us that a sacrifice has to be given to cover our sins. That's not when it happened. It happens at this triumphal feast. And then more understood in this triumphal feast week. God brought this to their attention in the month of the harvest feast of booze, which was given so that the people would rejoice in all that God had blessed them with. The emphasis God wanted them to hear was meant to bring their eyes from their sin up to his faithfulness and mercy in showing forgiveness and grace, even though these people had not been hearing him for centuries. The calm and the comfort to their souls came in the words, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Not their joy in the Lord would strengthen them. Hear the words right. That's not what's being said as a way to calm and comfort them or to calm and comfort you. If you're despairing and mourning either over the grief of your own sin or the grief of the sin in this world or the grief of hurt and pain that you've experienced this week. The joy of your Lord is your strength is not a comfort that, the, that your joy in the Lord would strengthen you. But instead, listen to this, that God's joy to bring you back here would be what enables your life with him. It is God's delight to gather you by his grace. That gives us renewed strength to look to him and follow him. The people were hearing that God rejoiced over this gathered in assembly of his people that he brought in Jerusalem and out of exile of the harvest season. In this particular year, the Feast of Booths was not for rejoicing in the blessing of harvested food that God gave. At this time and this year, these people were rejoicing in the harvest that God had made of them. He had brought them here. He had harvested and gathered them. And he had done it because he's faithful and merciful. As in all things, be it love or truth or beauty, the privilege of the people of God is that we get to live in God's reality. So when we love, we love with God's love. When we see truly, we see with the power of God's spirit that guides us into truth. And when we're joyful... We are feeling and living in the recognition that God delights to make his home with us. When we are joyful, we are living and feeling, living in the recognition that God delights to make his home with us in Jesus. He is thrilled to have sent his son Jesus to achieve that reality for you, Christian. He did not begrudgingly take away your sin and your shame. He did it willingly knowing what life he would win and achieve for you in dying in your place. God is not mad that he is now obligated to make his home with us. He is so glad to do so. 
This was his plan. He longed to make a reality since the beginning of time. So when you begin to drink that in, God's joyful posture toward you and Jesus, you will be amazed at how that enables you to pivot from the things that grieve and overwhelm you to resting in the God who delights in you. Last thing that God's word directs us in, in living with him and coming back to him. The last thing is this. God's word directs us to trust God first. That was the misstep. Israel's misstep that led them down this terrible road. They didn't trust God. That was Adam and Eve's misstep. And nothing like living in a hut made of tree branches to help you then re-remember where your true trust is. I'm going through a house renovation right now. And I can't tell you the many times a day that I wish that I could live in the new house. It just reminds me, God's given me that in this time to wait and to experience, where's your trust, Philip? Where's your trust? What do you need? This is where it all started for Israel. This is where it started in tents and booths in the wilderness, looking to God to take them where they need to go, provide what they need to live. He's brought them back to that. Wernal Road, no matter how nice we can fix this building, no matter how many people come to sit in these pews, no matter what successes we experience together or individually, remember, for life with God, we need only God. Better to be poor and full of Jesus than to be rich, to be full and have forgotten God. In all things, trust God first. So here it is. This is the way back to God that God's word leads us in. God's word brings us back to God. This is exactly where the gospel takes us. To know God, to mourn our sin, to find joy in Christ, to respond in trust. So when we want to know where we're supposed to go, we go back to the gospel. We follow God from there. And I love... How the movement of the Feast of Booths in the Bible takes us to the gospel too. Go to John, verse, John chapter 7 as we wrap this up. John chapter 7, page 892 in your pew Bible. I, wanna, I want you to see how God even meant <laughs> for these feasts to move us to Jesus. So one of the first feasts of booze recorded or mentions of it is at the end of Deuteronomy after the instructions are given in the law. And, and Moses is on the verge of, 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 of uh, sending off the people of Israel into the promised land. And he tells them at the feast of booze, once every seven years, read all the law of God in the assembly of people. And I think that's what Nehemiah is referring to of the thing that hadn't been done since then. Then you get into 1 Kings and Solomon becomes king and he builds, rebuilds the, or he builds the temple. And at the temple, he brings the Ark of the Covenant. And guess what time of the year it is when the temple's dedicated? The Feast of Booths. Then the people go, they sin, they go into exile, they come back. God assembles his people again to assert that his dwelling was with them just as he had at the temple. And just as Moses had told them it would be if they followed him. On the verge of the promised land. Now the exiles are back. And again. Feast of booze. And again. God's dwelling will be with you. If you follow my my law and my word. Not a coincidence. Then in John chapter 7. Verse 2. Jesus in his ministry. Guess what time it is. Now the Jews feast of booze was at hand. And in all of chapter 7. If you want to read through that. You have all these people trying to get out from underneath God's law that Jesus is speaking to. And then finally, at the end of John chapter 7, on the last day of the Feast of Booths, the great day, verse 37, John 7, Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Remember when we were talking and singing and rejoicing at the beginning of the service that the streams of the desert will fill up with water 
as God comes to make his glory known. And we pray that God would do that in our hearts. This is how he does it. The life that we need doesn't come from our obedience to the law. It doesn't come from the creation of a temple. It doesn't come from the rebuilding of a wall or people getting together for the same purpose. It comes from Jesus himself. The life flows from him. And in him we can be satisfied. The Feast of Booze, as with all of Scripture, points us to Jesus, where we can find life. If you don't know that life in Jesus, I invite you to have it. Come at his invitation in this passage. Come. He gives freely of himself. He gave his life to forgive you, to redeem you, to love you, and to bring you into life everlasting. It's provided for us. I'm going to conclude. I do not know where this country is going to end up. None of us do. I don't know what laws will be written and rewritten over the course of the upcoming years. None of us do. I do think God would have us in light of the circumstances of this week to thank him when our laws reflect his character. But I don't think God wants us trusting in laws that can't bring us to him. So we go back to his basics. That's where we can be at ease. That's how we can know we are with him and living with him. In Jesus, we can have life. That's his place. With his gathered people. Being led by his word. And I don't know where we as a church, Warner Road Baptist Church, will end up in this lifetime. But I know where we will end up one day because God is faithful. To forgive. And one day, the heavenly city, God's prepared place, Revelations tells us, will, as it were, descend to this earth. And the announcement will be made, and now our God will dwell with them. The new Jerusalem, and he will be with us. And the mourning and the weeping will be gone. Death will be gone. And sin will be gone. And all our inability to obey his laws that we mourn and grieve over, and We mourn and grieve over its effects in our culture. We'll be gone. One day we'll get to live in God's place with his people, rejoicing at how his word led us to life with him. Let's pray. So, Father, having spoken to us, help us to walk with you as you walk with us. Keep us from error. Keep us in the light. Keep us wanting to listen to your word and obey it. Keep us resting in the place provided and no other place where we can have life. Keep us in Jesus. And bring us home. Lord, as we're about to sing, we can, as we put our minds and hearts to it, we can, we can almost imagine what it will be like, but not quite. And we can sing in great praise that it is a certain reality for your people. And yet we're not there yet. So lead us there, Lord. As you've been faithful, be faithful still. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.